On the 26th of September, I'm launching a new podcast called The Family Tree. One of the things it's about is people. I think the main issue really is being able to maintain the separation between different aspects of your life, just as you wouldn't talk about sex over the family dinner table. So there should be a space where you can talk about sex comfortably with people who also want to sort of listen and, and discuss it. Being a priest uh, on a superficial level impacts the way I, especially when I'm wearing my dog collar, impacts the way <laughs> maybe it shouldn't, maybe when I'm not wearing my dog collar it should be the same. But I, I think there's an additional awareness. So when I'm walking down the street, there's a sense in which I feel a level of connection, I feel a level of empathy and sympathy with people. That, uh, that feels heightened in some way. They came on the playground and I said, it's nice to see you. Why, why are you on the playground today? Well, for the past three Thursdays, we got arrested by the police for nicking cars, they said. And we decided it was time to do something different. We want to build something really big. I was talking to a guy the other day, um, a Syrian refugee here in Berlin. He'd been separated from his wife and the three children in Macedonia. Uh, his wife was pregnant with, with, a ch with a third child and he'd just spoken to his third child who was born just a few days ago on the phone. This is a guy I was just having like falafel with and his life is so radically different to mine and his consciousness, his reality is so much tougher than mine. And I went away from that thinking, you know what, like, just be grateful. Be absolutely grateful. And he's, he's a really cool dude. I see him around, he wouldn't let me buy him a drink, he, wouldn't, he was just like, look, I'm just doing my thing. But it was really important to me to be sure, look, I have this consciousness, this society and this privilege. I will enjoy it. I will improve people around me as, as much as I can. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. Today's episode was recorded in December last year, so some of the things we're talking about are probably out of date by now. And it was recorded in a public space, and the thing with public spaces is you can't control them, and so as the conversation goes on, there is some background noise from other people having conversations, so that's just something that you'll have to tune out a little bit. I guess I was blessed with being so naive to the world where normally you go, oh, I won't try that because I won't have a chance. I'm not, and even now, I still do that. I'm, you know, I'm trying to write a novel, for God's sake. But I, there's no part of me that goes, oh, well, realistically, there's no chances I won't bother. I just go, well, I'll give it a go and see what happens. <laughs> and that's kind of still the way I live my life, which sometimes works very well. Sometimes it's catastrophic. But, but yeah, so I, yeah, I, just had no, I just had no idea it would be an issue, so I just went for it. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Terry. Hello Terry. Hello. <laughs> you alright? I'm good. We're just saying, we, we haven't really sort of sat down together long before we've turned the mic on, but we haven't seen each other for a little while. I'm trying to think when the last time was. Was it... Was it in the general election gig night? Right. That, oh, of course, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. We did. So we, we bumped into each other literally on the day, the night, night of the election. Of the depressing election. I mean, yeah. general election. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, both both of those things. And uh, yeah, that was good. It was good to bump into you then because that gave me more impetus to get you on the show. Cause it Indeed. It was a long time 
uh, ago when we worked together. So anyway, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? We worked together on the CBeebies podcast. Was it a podcast or was it a radio thing? I can't uh, remember. It was either. on CBeebies radio, so I guess it counts it as... Bugs. It it's, must be radio, it but must it was online, internet, radio. So basically a podcast, but even though it was a, with the official... It was a podcast that you couldn't download... Oh, it was a podcast only through some weird flash player. You had to play it, it yeah. Yes. But it's still available, actually. It's still oh, it? out there. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. People I know um, still with little children are listening to your voice. Oh. Uh, and, and the voice of Jenny Murray from Woman's Hour and the voice of lots of children, from, of uh, children. from Hackney. So that was the Ministry of Stories. We were doing uh, just running workshops there. God, my memory's actually going off. I can't remember what we actually did. So, so we... yeah, so what, what, what happened there is me and my, my friend Matt, a mutual friend of ours, mutual producer friend. Indeed. We approached the Ministry of Stories and pitched them the idea of doing a radio show for children, uh, for younger children, written by older children. Older meaning top of junior school. And they said yes. And in that meeting, we said we'd like Jenny Murray to be the voice of the chief. And they, they thought that was a good idea and I thought, you know, that would never happen, but Jenny mm. Murray said yes. Uh, and, they, they, and they mentioned you, I think, that they've yeah, been working with you. Because I've been volunteering there for quite a while at that point, and I think I just started running workshops there, and I suppose I must have told them that I used to do performing and comedy and stuff, so I think that's why my name then cropped up. But I can't really remember. So it was a few delightful days of slightly stressful... Recording with kids coming in and <laughs> quite early starts. And my main, my main memory actually is that one where we did a really great one and they'd forgotten to get the permission of the parents or something and we couldn't use it. Was Maybe right? there was something, there yeah. was definitely that. There was also a few, a few great stories, the BBC in their wisdom, of course. They were, they were very wise because they paid us for that job. And true, that's an true. excellent thing. Um, but they, they thought that some of the, some of the topics weren't suitable for young, for younger ears and so we had to sort of like pull back on some of that stuff. Of course, yeah. Cause if you do mystery stories normally, it's like the kids, there are some things off limits, but basically, it's the kids' imagination, do whatever you want. Yeah. And it was odd recording it because you go, yeah, whatever you want is right, but actually, the BBC probably won't let that one go through. So right. Just, just, let's just do something else. So, so was... to, yeah, to give a bit of context, the Ministry of Stories is an amazing organisation. You go through a monster supply shop mm-hmm. and through a secret passageway and into a, a room where uh, you learn, you, you, you don't learn, you, uh, you write, you create. Yeah. I mean, that is a form of learning, but it's very much not about teaching, it's about inspiring I think in lots of ways absolutely yeah and it works with children in of various different ages in the Hackney area you were volunteering for them beforehand mm-hmm and running their workshops. And the problem that we had, really, was that if you take children through a supply shop that's kind of all to do with monsters and then ask them to do stories that are not kind of about monsters and yeah. scary stuff and weird stuff, uh, that's a bit of a sort of strange strange balance. But the kids did get into it. They got into the idea of, you know, we're doing it for younger people. They, can, they, can, mm. they get the idea of, of altering your your tone and your register for different age groups they've all got younger children or whatever they know of younger children so they yeah. they got behind the idea of the project together with us yeah. but still they did make some good points which I do agree with for example the, the most popular under fives book is the Gruffalo and that's about a monster so why can't we do a monster good point, good point. I, 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 I would I would like to see the children sitting down with the BBC executives and explaining that to them. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, and we maybe had to. We, maybe that's of, the next time we should right. get children in for the meeting. 
get children to pitch stuff even better just get the children in from the offset right to do it all yeah, just do the whole I mean thing. that was what was exciting about it was the fact that it was even though it was mediated even though we had to make decisions and edit it and do retakes and stuff like that mm. we did uh, put out pieces that were written by children yeah or at least written by children with you as the facilitator of that you were like the voice that was your job was to get the kids to write the story right? yeah and I seem to remember I remember weirdly the X Factor would come up quite a lot like there'd always be a kind of story that's like they're on they're going to the X Factor there's a monster they're going to the X Factor mm. and they're like oh okay can we have and it's amazing when you do because we did I forget how many days in a row we did but it was like a good couple of weeks we just seemed to be there most days yeah and it's amazing yeah. how all these different schools different kids of different from different places all come up with the same points of reference time right. and time again and I'm always, I'm always fascinated when those kind of things well they're all watching the same TV well, show, true, so that's how we met you mm-hmm. you have a background in comedy and so that's one of the reasons why they thought and then we, we thought when we met you that you'd be good for the job and you were I mean one of the things I enjoyed the most about about that job because my job in that was to run around with a microphone with big course, fluffy yes. slippers <laughs> recording the children everything that they said and trying not to have them speak over each other and things like that like yeah. all of that complicated I mean I'm, I'm recording you now but people who listen to the show in fact people who are listening to the show now will know that the sound quality of this show isn't designed to be BBC quality uh, we're recording in the Royal Festival Hall there's lots of voices in the background ar- around us because I'm always aware of this some people listening to the show who are fussy about audio and I feel sorry for them because I'm not fussy about audio no I th- <laughs> so, we've, so, we've been spoiled that's what it is right we, actually listening to I suppose it's like if, if you're having a conversation with someone in real life face yeah. to face you're always straining to hear or we're like adjusting this or whatever so I think some good recordings don't have to be recording studio pin drop perfect no I agree and I actually think messy sound is something we're lacking in, in, in life these days I think you're right we are spoiled by really high production and I, I, I like high production I like good production but I also like messiness and it's like a little bit like how LPs still give us something mm-hmm. um, yep. sound wise that the, the brilliant digital recordings don't give us but yeah so my job was to run around with this microphone recording the kids you were standing sort of directing the workshop and Matt was somewhere offside like overseeing everything worrying about where all of the mics were what I was doing what you were doing what the kids were doing getting the retakes making sure that the kids were happy like because we had to keep them back to do retakes and stuff like that like after they'd finished with the stories right and we had to choose which bits and which children would read which bits and there's lots of kind of internal politics and and we we have to also of course adhere to the Ministry of Stories main mission statement which is to make the kids interested in making the stories and have a good time yeah you know we couldn't make the kids leave going oh well that was a boring day where we were doing work for the BBC and we had to do retakes and that we had to make them leave going yeah that was magic yeah yeah no it's like whenever you hear someone who went to Top of the Pops in the audience and said it how it ruined Top of the Pops for them because it wasn't as it looks on the teddy it wasn't bunch of bands all queued up after all there'd be a band then the audience would move and then there'd be another setup like an hour or something and yeah I remember talking to someone who went and just said it was the most boring afternoon I think is what I was always on in the, and they recorded it in the afternoon and just this guy I was talking to he said it's the most boring afternoon of my life just right. waiting around for the next band to start and you get 
you see your favourite band for two minutes and you've got to go and watch some terrible band you've got no interest in. Yeah. And I can imagine that ruins Top of the Pops with people. Right, and so I'm, I'm pleased that we didn't ruin the experience exactly. for those kids. That was good. But we, we, and we did make something that I'm, I'm proud of. Mm. And I think if, if they ever knock on our door for a second series, which at this point looks unlikely, um, I think we could make it even better because we've, we've, we've learned a lot. Yeah, we know what we're doing. Yeah, the second question that I ask everybody mm-hmm. is what do you do now? Well, that's a good question. What do I do now? <laughs> I don't know. I... Well, actually, it reminds me, years ago I lived with... Uh, I had a landlady. I was, I was in, in like a proper old-fashioned 50s-style lodging room in Kentish Town. And she was an artist. And she always said, what you do now is a thing you're getting paid for. And that's what she, she was always very sure. That. She, I think she said that because she was getting a lot of money to be an artist, so she could say that. So I suppose what I'm doing now in that sense... I'm a freelance graphic designer at the minute, and that's kind of fun. But I'm also trying to write a novel, which is the main thing I would consider myself to be doing. But that is not earning the pennies. Well, as someone who's written novels and and, and they haven't made me one bit of money exactly. at all, I, I think that's absolutely valid thing to say that you're a novelist, yeah. even if you haven't been published, even if you if you're, if you're working on a novel, you are a novelist. Me. So I guess that was one of the reasons you were doing workshops at the Ministry of Stories because they're a writing organisation. They're about getting kids interested in writing. You, yeah. you, you were, I think, were you doing an MA in writing at the time? I did. Yeah, I've done a creative writing MA in the last couple of years. So that must have, yeah, that must have been about the same time, wasn't it? God, yeah, the last yeah, few years. Yeah, because you had a lot on at that time. You were like, oh my god, I've got my MA and I've got this thing and I've got and this I had, thing. Yeah, and I had a full time job as well, and I was doing the MA and doing these. Yeah, actually, it was quite. Do you know what? That is funny to say because I finished the MA last December, like just over a year ago. And like in a lot of things in my life, I can be incredibly busy and I can just about cope with being incredibly busy. But then when I stop, then you look back and you go, I'm in total disbelief how busy I was and how I cope with it. And yeah. I remember when I used, to, well, I used to do comedy and do these shows, with, I'd draw these drawings for it. And I, I opened up this folder, like a zip file on my computer, and I found all these drawings that I'd done in the space of two months. And I was just like, that's impossible. I couldn't have possibly done that. And yet, there I had. So I'm, I'm very good at deluding myself. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, yeah, I, I, I relate yeah. to that as well, actually. I'm, I, when I'm busy, I don't notice it as much as when I look back at it, definitely. Yeah. And I remember the the last bit of work we did on that Ministry of Stories was recording with Jenny Murray. Oh, yes. And that was like you and you and her in a proper, proper radio studio and all of that. And, and I was on the other side of the glass, like, yeah. listening to you guys do it. And then after after we did that recording, I then went and did a what part of... I was doing a residency in a oh, yeah, greenhouse yeah, yeah. in and all this nonsense and like so there's a recording of me at the end of that day like late at night like recording this conversation with these two people and uh, it's quite a good conversation but I'm so tired and yeah, yeah, like just drained and it's, and well, it's really interesting as well because yeah I could not say that I just meet, met Jenny Murray because like she's like hero of mine and these were two people involved slightly with radio yeah, stuff yeah. themselves who I was talking to but but yeah that was an interesting experience meeting Jenny Murray mm. I mean she was great but she was she she was in charge, right? It was it was interesting because what I noticed, what I found most funny about that was because because the three of us have been working like me and Matt have been working on that as quite a kind of close knit team doing yeah. all the recordings, right? Right. And when because I was doing the recording with her, she kind of saw me as what they called a talent. You know, like we were just recording stuff. And then the U2 was kind of like the production stuff. And she, the way she spoke to you guys was different to how she spoke to me. Yeah. It, was, it was really interesting because I was like, no, I'm, I'm one of these guys. Yeah. And she'd just be like, kind of 
like Ryan smiling at me and like, oh, what's going on? And then like, do you like, can you get me a cup of coffee or something? Or whatever it was you were saying. It was just, I remember that being really vividly thinking, oh, you're, that's odd how you're treating us differently. It was interesting. Yeah. Although you, 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 it was a minefield on your side. I remember you saying something like you made a, a joke about, because I'd, I'd written it as, as snow, snow women, I think, or oh, something yeah. like that. And you made a joke about it and she was like, no, absolutely right. It's absolutely right that they should be snow women. Or I felt like you had a tough time in that recording session, but you did really well. It was, yeah. It was just kind of, <laughs> it was so, I mean, I've done, I've done like, quote, proper recording sessions before a couple of times. But I think it was, it was just the juxtaposition between what we've been doing for the rest of that Ministry of Stories thing. Compared to that, it was just so different. Right. Really, really just like a different world. And I kept wanting to kind of say, this isn't what it's like. <laughs> We're having fun. We've got kids happy. Yeah. Oh, uh, I made the big mistake as well, actually. That reminds me that the last line of every episode was grammatically incorrect. Uh, and I'd written oh, the, wasn't the script. It, like a, it was yes. Yeah, she she preferred she changed it to bold. It's like it's like the Star Trek. Was it was it like a split infinitive? Yeah, or something like that? it was a split I, infinitive. I don't know what the, the, this, this is. My thing to reveal from that day. I don't know what split infinitive is. I've never <laughs> learned that kind of thing. I'm not very good with grammar in general. So Star, Star Trek um, broke broke it. So to boldly go should be to go boldly. See, I hate all that crap. Yeah, I just, yeah. Like, it's just, it's well, me too, things. and that's why I got it wrong. But she was then. She said to me the first time, "Oh, it's a split infinitive." Because we'd only just sat down together. I just did that quite cowardly thing of going, "Cool, yeah, it is, isn't it?" Ooh. And then she mentioned it every time, and I got progressively more and more uncomfortable because I was like, "I hope she doesn't say something that implies." Like, yeah. I'm scared she's going to say something, and then my reply is going to be so obvious. I don't know what she's talking about. Right, right, <laughs> right, like, right. Oh yeah, yeah, it is yeah. a split infinitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's hard to bluff grammar knowledge because yeah. oh, it's, it's very specific. Terrible. But yeah, no, that that was the problem because it was in every single script. So I only got one thing grammatically incorrect, but it was in every single script. And she well. she changed it and she did it her own way. And you know that was a choice, and I support her choice. Yeah, didn't have to comment every time. Though. But I do like I, I quite like split infinitives. It was kind of deliberate, but never mind that. Good. Before that, you were doing comedy work before you started writing. Is yes. That right? Yeah, I I was like a proper stand-up comic quote-unquote for about I suppose about eight years I did stand-up for I think five or six years like professional was my only job and then a few years before that just open spotting and that kind of thing so when did that start for you when did you decide to become a stand-up comedian do you know it was one of those things where I was always you know I, I would like to say in hindsight I was always the funniest guy in the room that's not true I was always the guy cracking the most jokes in a room I remember somebody once saying to me you should be a comedian and I was like I never thought of that and that must be when I was about 18 and then everyone else in the room said no he shouldn't he's terrible his jokes are never funny but I think I had some kind of perseverance then I moved to London and I don't think I never really had any plans to go into it but I think I ended up doing some kind of writing some kind of sketch show thing in about God, like 2003 or something and then I ended up being in it kind of unintentionally and I went to Edinburgh, yeah, Edinburgh in 2003 I went as part of a sketch show which wasn't great and when I was having Edinburgh it was, before then I'd, I'd been to like a local comedy club in my hometown I'd been to see some like big comedy gigs like big famous comedians so where is your hometown Cheltenham in Gloucestershire and I remember seeing Sean Hughes when I was 16 there and that was a very formative gig but yeah I'd never been to a a London stand-up night and then I was in Edinburgh that year and I went to see a bunch of stand-up and 
it was it was that, it was that equal thing of going, this is for me, I love it, and that feeling of going, I can do this, and it was like equal fifty fifty. Like, I can do this. This is fine. So, I think I yeah, I think I must have booked my first gig when I got back from Edinburgh that year, and then the rest was history for a few years. That was my. And so you made a living from it. Yeah, I think I probably did about three or four years of just hobbying it you know like doing gigs after work and doing three or four or five gigs a week then I did an Edinburgh show a solo show in 2005 which is ludicrously short time but if anyone wants advice on being a comedian don't do an hour show where you've been doing comedy for 18 months but I tend to not follow the rules and then I did another Edinburgh show the year after and I think the year after that I got an agent and then suddenly just got paid for gigs like it got to the stage where I was getting like every now and again a good gig they'd be like it's 30 quid or something and then I'd just go to they'd be like oh can you be in Hereford somewhere at 8 o'clock for 100 quid most nights of the week and then it's a snowboard and you know I just started working constantly as a comic and why did you stop working as a comic? <laughs> that's another good question what? I I had equally uh, crisis of confidence in it, and I kind of lost my nerve a bit. I think it was the honest answer, but I just kind of fell out of love with it. And the last year I was doing it, I did I did fewer and fewer gigs. Like I was not. I mean, well, well, this is an argument to go back to. Is it was I doing less gigs or was I being booked for less gigs? And therefore, there was a kind of slump that was happening. Right. And then out of the blue. I got an email from Stuart Lee asking me to do a charity gig at the Bloomsbury Theatre for Resonance FM Radio because right. I used to do stuff in there and he used to as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hadn't gigged for a while and I was like, yeah, I'll do this. And I kind of wrote a whole new new bits and did some of my best bits. And it was, I mean, it was a great, in many ways, it was a great gig. So it was Kitson and Stuart Lee and Tony Law and I forget who else, but it was like one of those lineups where you just, as a comic, you go, cool, I'm on a good lineup here. This is all right. And it was sold out as far as I remember. It was really busy, and I was on stage, and I just had this feeling going, I'm not enjoying this anymore. And it was, like the gig was going, I wouldn't say it was a great or bad gig, it was going right, but I just remember really vividly having this feeling. And, and whereas some people will say, I can never get on stage, I can never do that, I, have, I never had a problem with that. And yeah, I just had this feeling, yeah, this is, this is it, I'm done. I think I had one more gig booked that week and it went terribly and I just cancelled every other gig. And that was it. Game over. End up. Right. And, yeah. And, I mean, you've done a bit of... You, well, literally on election night you were on stage yeah, doing, I reckon, doing a bit of comedy. But although you, you had a lot of problems with the... With the you prepared a lot of multimedia elements that yeah, didn't, oh, quite, no, that's, didn't quite work out. That was very... Well, yeah, so basically... So that must, I think I gave up in about 2000 and... 11 and I reckon since then I've done about 5 or 6 gigs probably literally and that election night one yeah it was just that was a real weird one for me because I was Tom Tucky runs it I'd, I'd done the election the previous election with him that same exact night we did the whole night together and that was still when I was doing comedy so it was like he said do you want to come and do it again and I was like yeah do you know what why not I'll do it and what I found amazing about it was 
how all of my skills had kind of dried up. <laughs> like, just skills of like reading a room and having stuff to say. And the first time I went up and my computer wasn't working, I know that the me five years ago would be able to just talk his way out of it and do it. And I was just, I remember just being still on stage going, oh. I've got, I've got nothing. But how could you read that room anyway? It was a complicated room because it's it was, crazy, yeah. like it began with every with because the exit polls <laughs> told everyone that it was the worst. Like everyone there wanted a different government than the one that was going to get in. So it just like yeah, this was as, at the um, Bethnal Green Working Man's Club. Right. You can imagine the uh, <laughs> and as soon as that was like that gunshot went off, like it was a weird room. It was a good night. I think it was a good night. Yeah. People had a good time, but it was a weird crowd to read because it was like a load of people like the for the politically and then some bits are funny but there's yep. also some serious bits in that show anyway because well so, unfortunately yeah. I had direct experience because the previous election gig was quite similar because it was expected to be this close run thing and then as the night went I mean it was a bit different because it was as the night went on it was becoming clear that the Tories had done very well not obviously well enough to get full government but that night had a kind of just depressing quality of like started off hopeful and slowly fizzled out whereas the one this year was yeah like a gunshot it was just like right. oh we've all been told to think we're going to have a long drawn out night and talking about coalitions and what's going to happen and yeah. no no going to exit poll right. Tories are in it's fine Right, and that was, a, I mean, again, that was a weird experience for me because I stayed up all that night doing that gig and then I went from there to record a, somebody else's podcast but okay. there's a recording of me that day, <laughs> again, exhausted. Um, you should document like, these yeah. tired recordings. Every, every time I mean, you've got a tired day, you do a recording and then just put it all together. Like, this is what I sound like. I mean, it, just, it does seem that not very much in my life uh, is not online, so I, prob- <laughs> I probably should try and reduce it a little bit. So, okay, so... What did you do? What did you did you go to university? Did you study? No, nope, I didn't. I didn't go to uni at all until I did this MA. I think I probably took a gap year, and then thinking. I remember very vividly when I was like, was it eighteen? When you go, thinking I don't know what I want to do in my life, so I don't want to settle on a degree subject that might be wrong. And then just never went back to uni. Like, I enjoyed my life, got a job, had friends never bothered and it never really held me back for a couple of years and then it was weird I moved to London and I felt I really felt this kind of fit. I tried to join these kind of writing groups and theatre groups and I really had this this feeling that not having a degree singled me out like everyone else I was doing stuff with were clear they were like what university did you go to and it would be that feeling of like um and I sometimes just lie <laughs> sometimes make up a university but um yeah that was weird and then yeah, then weirdly, get, getting on an MA without a degree was fun. So I managed to... So I'm now in the quite rare, I think, experience of having a master's degree, but not having a degree. That's pretty rare. Which is interesting. I, I haven't heard of that yeah. really before. <laughs> right, so you, you were... You grew up in Cheltenham. Yep. And were you into writing back then? Oh, always, yeah. Ever since I was young, a kid got these like exercise books full of stories and stuff so I was always always into reading and writing yeah I just used to read just as a kid all the time I always had a book in my hands without a doubt and then did you move to London because you wanted to pursue writing and things like that yeah I think originally it was theatre writing and originally that's how I got involved in like the sketch show stuff because I was trying to write things for other people there was no question of performing stuff and I didn't really gel with the theatre world. It's probably the polite way of saying it. I didn't really. I can't, basically, I can't stand theatre. I think it's. <laughs> <laughs> I've just. I just had. 
I don't know, maybe I've got quite a working class background and I think I went straight into this kind of pretentious theatre world and I just, it just didn't... And maybe if I'd have been to university, I think maybe that would have actually quelled that or prepared me for it. I don't know. Sure. Well, if you went to university, you would have met those people yeah. but just earlier on in Yeah, life. in a kind of more formative and I, I would have know. probably... I, well, I don't know. It could... I... I, I mean, I... I I've known people be alienated by that kind of yeah. kind of cliqueiness or that kind of middle classness who w- went to university and met those people there. But I've also known people, yeah, like you say, embrace it. Yeah, yeah. From those backgrounds. I mean, it really depends. I mean, yeah, you you may if if, if there's fundamental things you don't like about those that that kind of culture, you you're probably not going to get into it whenever it's. No, exactly. And I st- I, I do have this kind of pretension meter I suppose like if something feels too pretentious now I should preface this by saying in many ways I am extremely pretentious so I know this is incredibly hypocritical but if something appears pretentious something about me just goes right I'm done I'm not right. going to this and well, even now uh, as, a, as a relatively older man going I still have these kind of gut reactions of like this feels pretentious <laughs> I'm done I'm out of here well I mean yeah Oh, well, that's. I mean, generally, pretentiousness is, is is regarded as a bad thing, for sure. So I don't think you're like unusual in disliking pretentious. But it's, it's one of those things that the mileage varies depending on who oh, you terrible. are. Like, like some people find some things pretentious that other people will find salt of the earth. Oh, exactly. And, and also, like, like the last couple of years, the hipster thing yeah. has been a big source of pretentiousness, and. I am in many ways a hipster. I've got a beard, I wear glasses, I'm currently wearing an Apple Watch, you know, look at me, what a dick. Yeah, you check, check yeah. it out of the um, I love craft beer and coffee and I like hanging out in places that are quite hipsterish. But call me a hipster and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. Because I feel like there's a level of pretentiousness that a true hipster has that I'm... If not lacking, then at least aware of. Do you ride a bike? No, I can't ride a bike. I'm stuck. <laughs> wow, there you go. Pretty, straight, out. straight out, straight out. No, no, can't no, be a hipster. Not even possible. Yeah. Cannot tick that box. <laughs> so I don't know, and it's it's an odd one because yeah, it, it's like I look like a hipster, I smell like a hipster, I talk like a hipster, <laughs> but if you prick me, I'm not a hipster. <laughs> you say you come from a relatively working class background. Mm. Why did you like? And but you wrote all your life. Right? Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to even try theatre? Like, because that's that's not necessarily something that people from more working class backgrounds aspire oh, to. Although yeah, I yeah. know plenty of people from working class backgrounds in the theatre world, so don't like. I'm not saying that. No, no, no. It was total naivety. I had no idea that it would be an issue, or I'd feel, or I'd find it a problem, or I'd find other people there a problem I, it didn't even occur to me it was just yeah I think I, I, I guess I was blessed with being so naive to the world that where normally you go oh I won't try that because I won't have a chance I'm not, and even now I still do that I'm, you know, I'm trying to write a novel for God's sake but I, there's no part of me that goes oh well realistically there's no chances I won't bother I just go well I'll give it a go and see what happens <laughs> and that's kind of still the way I live my life which sometimes works very well sometimes it's catastrophic but yeah, so yeah, I just had no, I just had no idea it'd be an issue, so I just went for it. Well, that's that, that's pretty healthy. I think yeah. that's the thing. If you don't know it's a problem, then you don't don't know that it's you don't know the stakes, so you can actually mm. breeze through quite easily in some ways. So you didn't like theatre. You discovered stand up. You moved into stand up. You went off stand up, and you went and did this MA uh, mm-hmm. writing. I mean, like 
what kind of things what what's your novel up I mean not don't don't give us the don't give us everything don't give everything away but what kind of things you, are you is it a comic novel do you want to write comedy is 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 every all is all your writing funny or are you, you know what, it's weird. I'd say funny and comic novel are two different things right. I'd say that this is a very serious novel with funny bit. I think a lot of it is very funny, but it's, I wouldn't call it a comic novel. I wouldn't say it's all set out for the purpose of being funny. No, that's very fair. But actually, it's a different... Because doing this MA course, part, you know, wrote a novel during that as part of the course, and the book I wrote there, which I can happily announce was rejected by a couple of agents who liked it, the, the, the work, but it was very depressing, because I'd basically gone out... And looking back, I'd gone out and gone, right, I did comedy for years, I'm done with that, and I wrote the most depressing thing I could write. It was all about someone who could predict how people die, and it was all about death, and it was like... It sounds like my street. Yeah, well, it was. It was all, <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of proud of it. I, I haven't really read it back in the last year or so, but it was about as anti-comedy or as, yeah, as depressing as I could manage... And I think there were still some very funny bits in it, because obviously you can have very funny scenes in, in a bleak life. But, but yeah, it was like deliberately trying not to be funny. So the one that I'm working on at the minute, I'm not trying to deliberately not go down that path. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of, like, this this separation between funny and serious is, is absurd anyway. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 those two things are not separate from each other. Often you have the funniest moments just after the saddest moments. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that's basically what I'm basing my entire kind of career. So much, whatever, so much as it is, my creative career generally is about like stand-up tragedy, as yeah, opposed yeah. to create that kind of a feeling of like really sad, hilarious, really sad. Oh yeah, I think you can laugh the most at the worst moments. Like I always remember, I remember when I was at college having uh, a friend of ours suddenly died and we were all went back to one of our houses and it was just this kind of shock because we were all like I don't know, 17 or 18. I don't think any of us had experienced death before and I just I always vividly remember the day because we were just there going, how do we deal with this? We were all just sat in silence. And then within about an hour or two, it had kind of crept up to this level of hilarity where we started making these kind of thoughts of going, well, what if we got him embalmed and had him had him as an ashtray and then had him in that? And I think if, if you walked into the room at that point, you'd be like, this is the most grossly insensitive, sickening thing. But because it had kind of built up over a couple of hours of, of pure grief, it was probably the funniest thing any of us had ever heard. It was just the best way of dealing with it. And, right. Yeah, and it was just great. I'll, I'll never forget that. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's Yeah, I mean, I've heard other people say similar things mm. to that about the worst times, and I, I definitely... I definitely can relate to that myself if I think back about the saddest times in my life. They're also often the moments I've had the biggest laughs yeah, with, yeah. with people around, you know, around those terrible things. Totally. And you're right, they're not stuff I would necessarily want to record on the podcast and share <laughs> yeah. with you. They're the, the bits I'm happy to have offline, but they are, yeah. It's, it's a strange feeling, isn't it? That kind of... Yeah, the laughter of... of, of yeah, catharsis, right? That's, what, that's yeah. what it is. It's catharsis. It's, it's, it's getting out the grief through some kind of communal experience of laughter. So another thing that I know about you, so as well as all of the, the kind of the creative elements, well, I don't know, maybe you'll think this is a creative pursuit, but is that you're really into Grand Prix racing. Yes, yes I am, which I can't really explain in terms of why, because... I don't really, I don't really like sport. I can't drive. I don't really like cars. There's no real kind of 
reason why I love Formula One, but I absolutely adore it. And I've been a fan ever since I was nine years old, and I try and watch every race, and I bloody love it. Yeah, well, I know a few people who do love it. I yeah. don't understand them. When I was at university, I was I did a I was a, I did a comedy sketch group. I was in uh, kind of an audio comedy sketch group. Most of the stuff we made was for radio, and um, I wrote a sketch called. Uh, Grand Pricks uh, which was all about how ridiculous I found it like the idea of just like yeah right car goes round goes round like that was the joke I mean it wasn't a hilarious joke but (laughs) it it, it was funny because it was durational you know it would keep coming back and it would still be just as boring Um, and then my my joke was that the pit stop was the most interesting bit right Um, I guess was the joke I don't get it at all my my girlfriend's family like her mum and her brothers are and and one of her brother's partners as well are really into the Grand Prix they go and yep. see it they they love it I mean they're not sporty particularly either or particularly into cars I don't think and I can't I, I, I just look at them it just seems so weird to me I don't understand so why, why do people why do you like Grand Prix well, why, you know, what's, what works about it for you? I think the main thing is when people so the, the obvious thing you can say against Formula 1 is saying it's just cars going around in circles and then yeah, I am then just to counter with that we go well actually no it's blah 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 and actually it is cars going around in circles and often it's quite boring and I suppose for me the best bit isn't the pit stop the best bit is in between races it's like a soap opera it's the most the, the political background of Formula 1 is such a mess they're always slagging each other off there's always something happening it's almost like, like wrestling trash talk there's always something to talk about and to just to be like oh, so-and-so said this or so-and-so so we kind of are engines we're going to quit we're going to go away all this kind of stuff that it almost makes the Sunday afternoons where I drift off where I'm you know my wife said you want to come out to this I'm like no I'm watching the race and I'm just there going this is the most boring thing but I would also then say that when it is good it is one of the better sports I think when you get the kind of levels of tension overtaking will they won't they this kind of thing I do think it's up there with the best and I, I suppose it's like cricket I don't watch cricket I've never really watched cricket I don't understand cricket it sounds very boring but people who love cricket love cricket like they absolutely adore it and I don't get it I watch it again and again and go I don't get it yeah I mean I did kind of get cricket because I I guess my family were a bit more into it my brother was into it my dad was would be into it and I liked the communal experience of all sitting together and watching a thing and you're right it, it, it means that you have to block out whole days of your life yeah, yeah. to not be doing anything else you're just sitting there watching a thing and you're right it's, that, it, it is about the interplay between boredom and ex- sudden excitement yeah, yeah. Um, so I can I guess I can yeah I can if, if, but, but my I guess my, my my other critique when I wrote that sketch and I'm, I'm a much more reasonable person now um, but was that it's really just like then I would have said it's just cars and it's who makes the best best car and where's the human where's the human in that well actually I mean so what year would you have written the sketch would you say well it would have been 2002 maybe okay well actually you were, you were probably you were probably wrong then and actually it wasn't about who made the best car but weirdly you'd be right now like the best car really is the ones that win and I mean, to an extent, it's always been whoever makes the best car wins, but then it's, there's always at least, you know, there's two drivers in a team, so whoever's the best driver of those two, you get the team into play. And sometimes the car's very evenly matched, you know, it's, and it's different every year. And the, 
biggest problem with Formula One at the minute is you can kind of tell how the whole year's going to go in the first couple of months. You go, well, this team's got such a lead that no one's going to catch up that lead in the year. So that yeah, it used to be much more a team over the year can can definitely catch up, but now it does feel to be because the money involved now is so vast and the companies. You know, it's like it's Mercedes and, and Renault and, and Ferrari. These are huge, multi-million dollar companies that that will throw everything to win. You know, so it's, there's much less of a chance of someone losing face. Whereas in the old days, it used to be, you know, a, a few mechanics would make a car and they'd be like, "Oh, well, we've got we've got a team. Let's go for it," and they beat everyone else. And do you think it's lost something? Then? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's. it's I mean, like. Anything you choose to talk about, there'll be the set of people to say it was better in the old days. Formula One really was better in the old days, I think. There was. Actually, I think I would almost go so far as saying all sport was better probably pre 1985, 1990. It feels like when, corp- when, when the kind of corporate sponsor came in to most sports, sport died, I think. And like, uh, you know, technical advancement has almost gone too far you know it's like how uh, an athlete has trainers that are stupidly over designed and kind of have this like they can shave a tenth of a second off I feel that once we once things like that have gone into tenths or hundreds of seconds it's probably too late it used to be you know a car would win by a couple of seconds or a runner would win by a couple of seconds and now everything's such fine margins and the stakes are so high with corporate sponsorship and Tiger Woods being sponsored by Nike and you know, it's just like everything is just so yeah. important and well football is, a, yeah. is probably the most obvious example of this and it's cut all personalities as well there's very rarely uh, I mean the joke of the BBC sports personality there isn't any you know there isn't and it's like because all of these sportsmen and women quite I mean, quite rightly sign up to these big corporate deals at a very young age because they need the money to progress but it means they're then bound by this corporate responsibility of not saying anything controversial, you know, always saying the right thing at the right time, and it's just sucked the life, I think, out of most sports. Well, it's a weird thing as well, because sports is one of the routes for people who are in kind of disadvantaged backgrounds to really get out of that. But now, they don't just get out of that back, like of that financial situation that they're in. They they get catapulted into a ridiculous level of wealth. Like yeah, yeah. From 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 not having any wealth, and that must be such a weird psychological experience. I think. For, yeah, and for if you're people. and if you're then told you can have this wealth as long as you don't say anything wrong. Right. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will just go, okay, I'll try to say anything wrong, and then yeah. when they do say something wrong, it's catastrophic because they've done something very wrong. But yeah, it does feel like. You know the classic days of John McEnroe. You go throwing his racket down. He cannot be serious. That kind of that just doesn't feel like yeah. that can really happen anymore in, a, in an endearing way. Right, right. And in right. fact, if someone does have a tantrum in something like tennis, they're now frowned. I mean, I don't know what. I mean, that was before my time when he did when he did that. But I wonder now what was the reaction at the time. I think a lot of people rooted for him. But now, if a tennis player has a tantrum, you're like. Oh, that overpaid, spoiled brat! How dare right. you? Know, and it's like the because whole, they've got too much money. Yeah, because the, yeah. the, 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 the money is like it, it does become kind of obscene if you've got so much money for doing the thing, and then you're not even you don't mm. you know you're, you're not taking that thing seriously, or you're Absolutely. you know you, 
Yeah, that's an interesting thing. And you make a podcast, right, about Formula One? I should, yeah, I should get a plug-in, shouldn't I? So, yeah, with Matt, who we did the Ministry of Stories CBBC thing with, he's the producer. We do a podcast called For Formula One's Sake, or FF1S. It's very catchy. <laughs> and that's three of us who talk about Formula One... And I think we all love it and hate it about the same level. For, so for anyone who would be interested in listening to this podcast, ff1s.com, I think the litmus test here is I don't think you need to watch or love Formula One to listen to the podcast. I think we slag it off and talk funny about it enough that you don't necessarily have to be a big fan. Yeah, which I is mean, a hard sell. That's what Matt wants it to be as yeah, well. Yeah, He's definitely. the producer because he, he doesn't. doesn't like, yeah, he no. doesn't like Formula One. He doesn't really know. Like this is like his. If I can make Formula One yeah, yeah. interesting, then I can make anything interesting project. Yeah, I mean, I think as a proof, like we've done, I think maybe for six months or so, and just for Christmas we had like a our final one of the year, and we tried to find out if Matt had learned all the drivers' names, and he did not do that well. <laughs> and that's for someone who's been listening to all of our words for ages. So you don't have to like or no Formula 1 so Matt was vocal on the podcast you heard him do that test I don't think actually no, I don't think it was vocal I think he refused it to be recorded I did he? It was a, it was well he has not moment. done this show oh really? he has not oh. I hope there'll be a campaign to get him on at some point like well, we'll he's, been men- he's been mentioned by so many people he's often the way that I know people. well he basically does every podcast yeah well he makes so, all of them yeah. like he got there was a, um, a list of brilliant British podcasts and he produced three of them that came out recently yeah. like, he, he's got his fingers in all the podcast pies um, but yeah maybe one day li- listeners start a campaign get Matt Hill on getting better acquainted he won't do it Maybe he would. <laughs> he's, he's, he's actually he's been kind of like in the room sometimes, but he won't even but he won't speak. It's been interesting. He's a voyeur. Well, what's, the, what's the what's the audible version of a voyeur? A listener. A listener. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, um, yeah. I mean, me and him I go bet, back. I bet Jenny Murray would know that after that. She would. She'd be there going, oh, she it's would. A Latin thing. Yeah. 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 No, he, he. I mean, me and him go back a long way, and so maybe that's why he doesn't want to come on my podcast. Um, but yeah, if you ever meet him, listeners, ask him to come on my show. He won't. I mean, I really don't think he's going to now. I mean, I've been doing this show for so long. I'm more likely to get my little sister on this show than him, and uh, neither of them want to do it. So, uh, we'll well, why did your sister want to do it? You know, it's just outside of her radar. It's <laughs> not something that she's that interested in doing. Also, I mean, I guess maybe with her, she doesn't want to come on because we've got shared history she doesn't necessarily want to talk about or I talk about my issues for a living but she doesn't so true, she doesn't true. necessarily want to come on and talk about her issues especially because I know all of the, you know it's, <laughs> that's the tricky thing I mean maybe it's a bit like that for Matt like when you when you know someone really well it's, yeah. it's likely that they'll you'll reveal more than you want to true, true. Not, not that not that Matt has buried bodies under patios or my sister not um, as far as I know no, it's never come I, up in the Formula One I podcast. I certainly don't know if they have. If they, I, I, I have no knowledge. If, if they both be, if, if they're both discovered to be mass murderers, um, I, I was joking at this point, and uh, and uh, I did have no prior knowledge. I am not an accessory um, to that. Um, but neither of them are, are murderous in their in their in their outward in their outward presentation, at least. Yeah, in fact, I was best man at Matt's wedding, and I, I wouldn't have done that if he was a murderer. So, to be honest, you missed a trick. That would have been the best night to record him for the podcast. Well, it would have been. 
had a few drink, presumably. Well, yeah, but he was a bit busy getting married. And actually, to be fair, I wasn't even the best man. He split best man between a number of different men, which is a wise move. Uh, I was I was the best man responsible for the speech, whereas other people were the best man responsible for nice. whatever else. So yeah, very uh, egalitarian, Matt Hill. So the other thing that seems to me to be something that you do, I mean, it was the first answer you gave is graphic design. Like, how does that fit in with all of the rest of this stuff? Where did that weird skill I, come from? I don't. I kind of don't know. Like, I didn't love art as a kid. I didn't do it at university, obviously, because I didn't go at all. And yet, somehow, I really picked up on. I wouldn't even say drawing. I think when the computers came around, when I was like starting to use a computer, I got a copy of Photoshop and just started playing with it and enjoyed the kind of geekiness of learning stuff. And then when I started doing Edinburgh shows. I I couldn't afford to pay anyone to do a poster, so I just sort of like, oh, I'll try it myself, which I am not the first or last person to do. But I think I'll come out and say, I'm quite proud of the results. It made me realise that, weirdly, I can do this, you know, and it's odd. And so for a few years, I did all my own posters and flyers and a few other people's things as well. And then my shows became these kind of... I do these, like, long, hour-long story shows, like like a fictional story... And I'd have these drawings and animations in the background that I'd done all the drawings for as well, which were, yeah, just a phenomenal amount of work. And it would all be hand-drawn, so I didn't know, you know, then I'd scan it all in and tweak it on the computer. And just, I guess, from doing that and the posters, when I came to be looking for work, I just started saying I could do design. And I kind of fudged my CV a bit to make it look like I'd done more stuff. And then I got some work doing design, and then it kind of snowballs from there. So now it's... You don't have to fudge your CV in. Yeah, one of those things where... Years of, of experience there. Yeah, like what I like... like fudging, fudging things is what I always find fascinating because I remember having this big argument with some friends. The first Edinburgh show I did, I was trying to write the blurb for the back. I was trying to make myself sound as impressive as possible. But yet not going over that kind of bullshit line of just lying. <laughs> and I'd done one open spot at the comedy store and a couple of friends of mine who knew nothing about comedy just said, well, you've played the comedy store. You can say... Has, has been on at the comedy store or and I remember not knowing that much about comedy myself at that time thinking that feels like it's crossing a line I don't know how and thankfully I went with my conscience and didn't say Terry Saunders has played the comedy store because it's just that's it. and then you see so many comics who, who are like starting up and use those kind of blown up not lies as such but certainly giving a wrong impression yeah because it's quite easy to play the comedy story yeah. so it's quite easy to get on yeah exactly it's getting asked back is the, <laughs> is the hard bit yeah I mean it's yeah those things are weird though I mean sometimes you can get like credits as well that just don't even really help you I this year in Edinburgh like well last year now 2015 in Edinburgh um, I was doing some live versions of Getting Better Acquainted and uh, the Financial Times I don't know how I didn't even give them I didn't give them a press release I don't, I don't know how the Financial Times found out about me but they did um, and they they run a piece about conversations and um, this kind of like piece about this kind of new movement towards conversation in arts and it was like Mark Maron Desert Island Discs Getting Better Acquainted I was like what? And obviously, I don't, I don't read the Financial Times. A friend of mine was like, you definitely won't have seen this. And I was like, yeah, wow, that's amazing. And then trying to, get, trying to change that 
that really good press, I'm very pleased about it, into getting people interested in coming to see this show was interesting. Yeah. Go up to people on the streets of Edinburgh and say, getting better acquainted, as mentioned in the Financial Times, it just doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They right. just go, all right, two things, a thing I've never heard of mentioned by something I don't respect in terms of the arts. Brilliant. Great. See you I'll later. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, even if you get the credits, it's quite hard to kind of use them to get people in totally and plus I think half the time people think most of these credits are bullshit right because of the fact that people massage them so much well I think the, my favourite one in, the, in recent years in terms of comedy is when you get the acts who have appeared on the Michael McIntyre Road show or something like that and their flyer says the star of the Michael McIntyre Road show it's like, well you're not because Michael McIntyre's yeah. started. It's like you, you may have been on it and you may have been fantastic and people may love you for it, but just that kind of. And it's oft, often it's not the comedian, obviously, it's their agent or their press saying, of course, you have to start. You know, it's just, it's such a strange thing. You can't, you can't be the star of something that's got someone else's name in the title. That's, yeah. that's kind of implied. No, you're right, that's very true. What is your kind of aesthetic and interest in terms of graphic design? What, what, what are the things that you... Illustration, in terms of I like, like my own personal work, is drawing real things, often on a computer these days, and like just, just buildings and, and just trying to, trying to capture something. It's just trying to get a very two-dimensional version of a real thing. Which, you know, I'm, again, I'm not the first person to ever try and get something down, but I've just started doing screen printing and it's kind of, oh, I'm a hipster, oh God. <laughs> and um, yeah, just trying to work out how all that works. It's fun, yeah. Yeah, it's screen enjoyable. printing is interesting. Like, I know a few people who've got into screen printing. Yeah, and it's enjoyable. And it's, I think maybe it's because it's an immediate result. And what I'm struggling with in the last couple of years trying to write a book is there's no immediacy. It's a long long hard slog yeah and back in days of comedy you'd write something and that night you could try it out and it would get a laugh or not and you'd know immediately if it works or not it's just like I've, I think I'm missing that feeling of immediacy so I think I'm trying to do things design wise and drawing stuff just because you go oh well, this looks good or not good and I know immediately whether it's good or not yeah yeah. Well, yeah, that makes that makes sense. I mean, so you're writing this 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 novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, so this will be your second novel because you've already written one. Technically, or... yes. Actually, well, technically, it's the first because I wrote this before I did the MA. Then I wrote another one, and now I'm going back to this one. So it's my first, yet also second. Uh, yeah, right. It's confusing. But you're not doing an MA anymore, so you're now doing it for love, I guess. So, yeah, love. Uh, with a day job. What is that like? I mean, I kind of know what it's like because I've done it. But what is life for the audience? Weirdly, it's kind of it's kind of fun. It's like I don't guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know what normal people are like. Like <laughs> the idea of doing a job and going home and just doing nothing or relaxing or anything. I just don't seem to have that in me. I've got this kind of crazy need to always be doing something, whether it's a novel or screen printing or trying to work out how to rewire my flat or whatever. You know, I'm one of those people that's always doing something. Like I, 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 I'm not very good at just going right I'm going to do nothing all week or try nothing so and I've always been writing ever since I was a kid so it just to me it just feels like the most normal thing in the world to be trying to work and if I like I say to a friend of mine the other day I was like oh on my lunch break I'll go to a cafe and like try and write for an hour and she just kind of gave me this look of what but you're on your lunch break I was like oh oh I should be 
I should be having a break, shouldn't I, at that point? Yeah, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. So, so yeah, to me, it's just normal. But again, I suppose it's like saying earlier on, that kind of feeling of never quite understanding how busy you are till you stop. It's the same thing now. It's like I'm still, I'm still cramming in every hour I can. And, yeah, I have, I have me time. But, yeah, just writing. It's just what I do, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. It seems like that's the writing is the consistent thing mm. through your life, like comedy and all of these things, the, and ministry stories, all of these different things. Maybe even, like, I guess the, the the one, the one, the one thing is not like the other is the, the Grand Prix. That doesn't seem to have yeah. any relationship to the the writing. But except now I do a podcast on it, so I'm writing. But so I've, I've right, made it into writing. writing about I, yeah, Grand I don't. Right. It's not there because of writing, but I've forced it to become writing. That's how insane I am with right. writing. Everything's got to be writing. And it, and was like so when you, if you were writing from a young age and reading it at a young age, was that something that you got from your home or your family or from your school? Or? My mum was very much a reader. Always was. Always has been. Always will be. And I just remember, to be honest, without the, without the violins and the kind of everything else, it was quite. It was a bit of a poor upbringing, and there'd be just a lot of time of not doing much. Like my mum at work and I'd be waiting for and stuff so I, I just I'd fill in those voids with reading and then the obvious kind of fantasy element of reading of escaping into different worlds that kind of thing so that for me I find it fascinating because I, when you with Facebook you can look at kind of your old school friends and whatnot, and it feels like a lot of my school friends either joined the army or went to jail and I always kind of look back at my school days with this kind of slight bewilderment of going my life isn't like anyone else I know I went to school with like I don't fit any mould of what my school was like it was a fairly rough comprehensive in the 90s you know and, and so yeah I've always just used writing as an escape and a job I think anyone who writes to a certain extent it's it's it is escape, and it's it's dreaming. It's it's, yeah. it's it's escaping whatever whatever you think. Like it could be it could be class issues and like those kind of things that you're talking about. It could be you know whatever it is, but it's it's a way of escaping mm. from yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you think? Totally. I mean, even though you're creating everything from yourself. Oh no, no, totally. So it's, a weird, no, I, it's a weird I, thing. I do think. I always remember reading this uh, Stephen King. Uh, interview or it's part of his book I can't remember he said he believed everything he was told and he'd always believe every single thing and he, he had this story of going he was told by one person that if you put a coin on a railway track then when the train goes by the coin will be flattened so thin that it's, you can actually bend it and someone else told him that if you put a coin on a railway track it will derail the train and he said his it's just fascinating where his, his worldview, which I think I'm the same is that he says I believe both of those things I believed that it would be flattened and derail the train and he wow. just says he spends his whole life just believing everything he reads or everything yeah. he's told and I, and I kind of feel the same I'm really bad politically because I'm a very ardent left wing Jeremy Corbyn supporting everything and sometimes I read a very right wing article and I'll kind of go oh well you've yeah, that seems to make sense. Yeah, yeah. And then oh, someone else will then write something back and they'll be like, no, this is wrong. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's just wrong. So I always have these kind of fantasies of going into politics, but also know that I'd be properly rubbish. Like, I would always go, oh, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, I'll, I'll backtrack on everything I've said. Right. Oh, no, hang on, this is a good idea. So, yeah. 
couldn't do it. But no, I, I think I'm, in, I'm attracted to politics because of the old stand-up in me. I think I, I think I could be quite good in the House of Commons, <laughs> but shit at everything else. I wouldn't be able to deal with people, meet meet the constituents. God, that drives me crazy. Or even <laughs> even just the, the three or four or five years of being a, a local activist that it would take to even be. To be even considered, to be considered yeah. would just be beyond me. I'd just be bored. I get bored so quickly. Right. <laughs> I just know I couldn't do it. But if I got parachuted in as an MP for an argument's sake, <laughs> I think I'd be quite good on some days. Then I get bored. Right. The idea of just a four-year term, like I've, I've done, I can think of very few things I've done for four years without getting interminably bored by it. So. It takes a long time to write a novel, though, right? Oh, God, you're right, yeah. I've, done, <laughs> I've been doing this one for... Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Well, um, well, I think, although I had a two-year break from this one because I was doing the MA, I think I started this in 2010, so this is going into the sixth year of it. Yeah, uh, I think it took me six years to write my first novel. Yeah. It took my partner six years to write the novel she finished last year. Yeah, there you go. Six years is... I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't always take six years, listeners, if you're thinking about writing a novel. <laughs> if, if it takes you less time than that, that's fine. You've not done something wrong. Um, It'll be 2022 by the time we finish. <laughs> and if it takes you longer than that, that's also fun. But, yeah, long time it can take to write a novel. And making it... Right, I guess you, you write the first draft and then you've got to rewrite oh, yeah. and rewrite and rewrite and get people's opinions and rewrite. And that's... Yeah. Very different from stand-up, I guess, because, you, you, like you say, you don't have the immediate response. You have yeah. to... You, you go wrong for a lot longer before someone tells you that you've got it wrong. Oh, absolutely. That's the yeah, problem, yeah. isn't it? And then you've absolutely. got to go back and do a lot more work. So, yeah, it's been a real pleasure uh, getting better acquainted with you up here at the Royal Festival Hall. For regular listeners who know that I do it at the Festival Hall quite regularly, this time we're, we're next to the lift, the singing lift... Um, it's not singing at the minute. It's not I, singing I, at the moment, no. I went, in, I went up in it and it's not singing. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad yeah. that the singing lift... If the singing lift doesn't sing, what is it? Where's its identity? Exactly. It's just like every other bloody lift. Yeah. Um, and we're doing it relatively late at night, which is why there's a, a few more voices in the background, but not as bad as sometimes when I've done it late at night. It's, it's pot luck, really, sometimes. It's like there's a big concert happening and there's people good point. Yeah, there's nothing streaming going on out and stuff yeah. like that, which is a, an audio nightmare. <laughs> Even for me, who likes messy sound, I like messy audible sound. Yeah, messy sound you could hear. Yeah. But the last question that I ask mm. everybody is... Do you have anything to plug? Which yes, I've already sneakily plugged it during the show, haven't I? But the my four in one podcast, which I must assure you or implore you to listen, even if you don't like Formula One, is ff1s.com for Formula One sake on all good podcast directories. Yeah, 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 directories. Um, And yeah, listen to us banging on about a sport that really no one likes. Let's be honest, it's rubbish. It's got. I would. I, I would call it the worst named sport in the world. Formula One is such an embarrassing name. When someone says, "What do you like?" Formula One, oh, it's just <laughs> ugh, it makes me feel sick every time. Right, right. It, does, it sounds like a cough medicine. Yeah, and it's just like, this is way Formula One. It's like it's going to be the best. It's like, oh, right. it's Formula, oh yeah, it's Formula One. So we're the best. It's like I suppose the Premier League does the same thing, or Division One as it used to be. You know, it's that thing of going. It's, it's the best thing. The whole name of the sport. It's Formula One. Totally. And no, that, that's good. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a, a little taster of what it might be like to listen <laughs> exactly, to. Yeah. And the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Hey, audience! I'd like to say a formally uh, hello. Nice to meet you, <laughs> and uh, goodbye. Hope to be seeing you again sometime. Bye, everyone. Bye. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at. 
GBA podcast. You can like it on Facebook. www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. On Monday, the 26th of September, I'm launching my new podcast, The Family Tree. When my dad found out about a mystery concerning a long-forgotten friend of his, I decided to investigate it in the only way that I know how, by having conversations. I can't make judgments or say anything without knowing all the facts and everything around it. It's sort of exploring each of the parameters of each potential story you're given and trying to work out how it can fit into each one of those. And I guess in a way it's all of them until, until it's none of them or one of them. Mark Sullivan, who disappeared 15 years ago, was found dead in January this year when a forest was cleared for a new building development. I see the world differently, having known Mark Sullivan. You're like the, the, the person who's the witness for all of them. Mm-hmm. You're, you, the only yeah. thing they'll know of their dad as, a, as an adult, you know, is going to be through, through your eyes. I mean, I guess that's quite a big responsibility. It's, it's difficult. The body they found still had the arm and teeth that he lost in a car accident and seems to have died eight years before he disappeared. I mean, who's the dad you'd spent so much time with if your dad is a body that can't be the dad that you grew up with. It doesn't make any sense. Like, even if there's some other reason for that other body, he'll still have died. But whether I would have felt different if Mark had disappeared before the accident compared to when he did disappear, I don't know. You keep talking about this mystery and I I think, I don't know, I think someone's made a mistake somewhere. I know you don't mean it like this, but the question's almost offensive. In this podcast, I try to unpick this mystery through a series of conversations with Mark's family and friends. But I don't know, and there's only so many ways that someone can say I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a mystery, it's just... Yeah, you said it's a mistake. There are things that I think I probably can't tell you about. But you also can't deny that it's it's evidence. Obviously, there's a difference between evidence and proof. Right. I mean, there are things you can't explain. If he turns up, he turns up. But, you know, we're fine as we are. He's not going to. So, yeah, I'm not thinking about it because... Because he's not going to. to. If ghosts do exist, I think they wouldn't look how they looked when they when they died. They'd go back to how they looked in life. So, so Dad's ghost would have an arm. I wasn't sure what you would have perceived that as. It's interesting that now I'm sort of this far into this project, I've spoken to so many people and I still don't really have anything uh, to fill those holes with. Did Mark have a twin? Was there some sort of shady dealing on the part of the police? Was there was there a mistake in the identification? All of these questions are in the air, I think. I can't explain how that ghost then became a, a body that, that's been buried. That's a, a sort of a gap for me. I don't understand what he's talking about, how about how he doesn't want to talk about it. Right. I mean, he's got two dads, essentially. I've kind of decided to frame the show as if it's fiction. Isn't this just, like, upsetting everybody all over again? Like, it's, you know, it's not very nice. I think God does move in mysterious ways. There are things that are 
in some ways beyond our understanding, I think, and are nevertheless true. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. It's too much for one person to puzzle out by himself. I don't have answers. I don't know.